Welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast. So far, we've looked at some larger themes that animate the Bible. Uh, We took our Bibles apart uh, to look at translations and sources, and now we're moving to genre in a section I'm calling Sacred Literature. Jumping in quickly, I want you to guess where you think this appears in the Bible. If a nobleman struck another nobleman's daughter and has caused her to have a miscarriage, he shall pay ten shekels of silver for her fetus. If that woman has died, they shall put his daughter to death. If by a blow he has caused a commoner's daughter to have a miscarriage, he shall pay five shekels of silver. If that woman has died, he shall pay one half mina of silver." I've been a little unfair because it does not appear in the Bible at all. It is an excerpt from the Code of Hammurabi. Hammurabi was a king of the Amorite dynasty in Babylon and ruled from 1728 to 1684 BCE. A copy of the code was discovered by French archaeologists in 1901 and currently lives in the Louvre. Um, Why does it all sound so familiar? So here's something that reads like Hammurabi, uh, found in Exodus 21. When people who are fighting injure a pregnant woman so that there is a miscarriage, and yet no further harm follows, the one responsible shall be fined what that woman's husband demands, paying as much as the judge determines. If any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a slave owner strikes the eye of a male or female slave, destroying it, the owner shall let the slave go, a free person, to compensate for the eye. If the owner knocks out a tooth of a male or female slave, the slave shall be let go, a free person, to compensate for the tooth. What do you find most noteworthy from this passage? Maybe take a moment and and pause the tape if you wish. I might begin with the parallels, which are striking, especially the movement from aggrieved free people to their slaves. The other noteworthy shift is a kind of uh, fee schedule for injury to a framework that forbids escalation, meaning that you are strictly limited to an eye for an eye. In later Christian theology, uh, this will become part of the rationale for proportionalism, uh, the idea that your response should be commensurate to the injury you receive. Our our parallel passage from Exodus 21 is one of the most frequently quoted passages in Scripture, forming a handy caricature of the law found in the Bible. Uh, Jesus quotes it in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. 
I'm sharing all of this because I find it fascinating and because it illustrates a common type of literature found in Scripture, namely law. The passage from Hammurabi is part of the same genre as is the passage from Matthew, despite the fact that Jesus is revising the law based on his knowledge of God. As we explore the various literary forms found in the Bible, we will see that they relate to both internal material, uh, other parts of the Bible, and to extra-biblical material. Does the parallel between Hammurabi and Exodus 21 surprise you? Um, What could explain the similarities? Take a moment and pause if you wish. This, then, is further proof of the theory that the Israelites moved into the Promised Land and had persistent contact with their neighbors. They developed and maintained a distinct identity, but they also found helpful things to adopt or revise. So so that's law. Uh, Next, it's myth. Uh, While the word often denotes something considered untrue, uh, we need to guard against this assumption. Uh, Years ago, I heard a quote from an unnamed uh, indigenous elder who said, I don't know if this story happened this way or not, but I know it's true. The factual content of the Genesis stories are open to question, but the truth of the stories may need to be considered more carefully. I have long believed that the best means to understand the basis for the Genesis material is to imagine the Jewish tradition of a child asking questions. A child might ask, why didn't God make the world a perfect place where everyone does what's right? A narrative response, an explanation in story form, uh, might begin with temptation in the garden and our eventual expulsion. Did it actually happen? Is it true? Certainly, there were early humans who discovered themselves and became self-aware. In the Bible, our early storyteller cast them as Adam and Eve. This is perhaps the genre that best illustrates the idea of a meta-narrative, a defining story that points to some central truth or commonly held understanding. So a couple of questions. What other stories might we classify as myth? Uh, And can you link your example to a question that a child might ask? I'll give you a moment to pause. The next genre uh, we will call legend. Uh, Perhaps the best explanation can be found in the narrative itself. In this case, in Genesis 32. The same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So then he said to him, What's your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. 
the story does a number of things in 10 short verses. It explains how the troublesome Jacob regains God's favor. It reinforces the covenant promises and reveals the source of the name Israel, which became the name of this nation people. Rather than revealing some truth, legends tend to explain traditional names, places, or cultural practices. Uh, Another example is the episode in the desert where the Israelites quarrel with Moses about the lack of water. It's Exodus 17. When the situation is resolved, these places are called uh, Massa, means testing, and Meribah means quarreling. So why, why is it important to create these names? History is our third genre. History, of course, comes with a particular bias and is subject to the interest of the author. The history found in the Bible is not so much a precise rendering of the historical record as a telling that reinforces the theological agenda of the teller. One of my favorite bits of history is found in 1 Samuel 8. Uh, Samuel is a judge and a leader of Israel in the period before the nation was ruled by kings. Um, And the people, of course, are jealous of their neighbors as they have kings to legislate and lead them in battle. So the elders of Israel uh, plead with old Samuel, begging him to appoint a king over them in place of more judges. So Samuel turns to God for direction, and God says, Take heart. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. So let them have their king, but first warn them what this will mean. Here's the passage. So Samuel reported all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain and that of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flock and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, no, we are determined to have a king over us. So we uh, may also be like the other nations and that our king may govern us and go before us and fight our battles. It it has an amazing, I I told you so, feeling to it. Uh, Samuel's words echoed down through the ages and still have currency today. This is biblical history at its best, recounting the story of God's people and illustrating truth that remains current. So is it still current today? Take a moment. The next category is music. The Bible contains a hymn book, we call it the Book of Psalms, and a variety of other songs that are both obvious and hidden Some are only fragments, such as the song of Miriam from Exodus 15. Uh, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has thrown both horse and rider into the sea. 
Some have argued that this is the oldest fragment of the Bible. Songs such as the Magnificat from Luke 1, My Soul Magnifies the Lord, are obvious and are also used liturgically in many traditions, while others are hidden. A good example of this is Philippians 2, verse 5 and following. Uh, It began as a song and uh, likely the earliest fragment of the New Testament and later became part of Paul's letter. He writes, "Uh, Your attitude should be the same uh, that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. Because of this, God raised him up to the heights of heaven and gave him a name that is above every other name. And so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Hearing that passage, can you hear any other hymns that have come from the words of this particular hymn found in Paul's letter? The next uh, genre is called wisdom literature and is easily identified based on what scholars call the classical wisdom formulation that the good prosper and the wicked are punished. Uh, Psalm 1 uh, is an excellent example. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with scoffers. But they delight in doing everything the Lord wants. Day and night they think about his law. They are like trees planted along the river bank, bearing fruit each season without fail. Their leaves never wither. In all they do, they prosper." But this is not true of the wicked. They are like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. They will be condemned at the time of judgment. Sinners will have no place among the godly, for the Lord watches over the path of the godly, but the path of the wicked leads to destruction. So, any problems with this type of literature? Maybe uh, take a moment to discuss. Simply put, uh, it's not true. Uh, The book of Job, which is uh, beyond our scope for today, uh, is written as a corrective to the wisdom writings found throughout the Bible. Uh, In short, misfortune finds Job and his friends, his so-called comforters, quiz him endlessly on what he may have done wrong to anger God. Uh, I commend it uh, highly as a, a corrective to this universal impulse we seem to have to blame the victim. There is another type of wisdom literature, and so I'm going to share with you a few samples from the book Proverbs, beginning with Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. Proverbs 28. Those who conceal their sins do not prosper, but those who confess and renounce them find mercy. Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Um, I actually find the King James Version uh, much more uh, compelling. Pride goeth before a fall. Um, 
you should find someone haughty and, and let them know. Uh, Proverbs 19, uh, many are the plans in a human heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Uh, this uh, passage of course, inspires the uh, Yiddish proverb, uh, man plans and God laughs. Um, again, tell a friend. Um, and, and this one's a favorite from Proverbs 6. Uh, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. I'm going to avoid uh, contemporary examples uh, here, uh, so why not find a few of your own? You could even pause and take a minute if you wish. Finally, uh, uh, one for the vegetarians uh, listening, uh, Proverbs 15, uh, 17 says, better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fatted calf with hatred. The sayings uh, in Proverbs form a sub-genre within wisdom literature that could be described as helpful advice. The self-help industry takes its inspiration from this book, but it's also a catalog of all the ways God dislikes the haughty, uh, generally those who look to themselves rather than looking to God for support and comfort. Moving on, uh, prophecy is a common genre uh, and a commonly misunderstood genre. It's helpful to set aside the idea that a prophet foretells, and remember that most often they tell forth. They have the job of speaking for God. Uh, if you remember the story of Jonah running from Nineveh, becoming whale food, and eventually speaking God's warning to the city, you have a good snapshot of a biblical prophet. There are significant differences, of course, in the content and context of the prophets, uh, but the same assumption that they speak for God exists in each. So here's a good example from Isaiah 5. This is the story of the Lord's people. They are the vineyard of the Lord Almighty. Israel and Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected them to yield a crop of justice, but instead he found bloodshed. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of oppression. Destruction is certain for you who buy up property so others have no place to live. Your homes are built on great estates so that you alone can be in the land. But the Lord Almighty has sealed your awful fate. With his own ears I heard him say, Many beautiful homes will stand deserted, the owners dead or gone. Ten acres of vineyard will not produce even six gallons of wine. Ten measures of seed will yield only one measure of grain. We looked at this when we were discussing the exile, so I won't belabor it, except to say that the issues lifted up by the prophets are often timeless. Access to land or property, nimbyism, or the just distribution of wealth are as relevant today as 2,500 years ago. 
An often misunderstood and often ignored genre is apocalyptic writings such as Daniel and Revelation. Related to wisdom literature, they present a vision of the end times where the righteous will be vindicated and the wicked will suffer. It's written as a future hope, scholars suggest, because the context for the writing was persecution. It was meant to give hope to the people and remind them that God would save them from their suffering. It's also an element of the gospel narrative appearing as a form of prophecy. Again, it's important to remember that the words tell us more about the context that the author faced uh, than an accurate prediction of the future. And it remains a favorite genre uh, for those looking forward to the end of the world. Uh, Let me share with you from Mark 13. Jesus replied, uh, Don't let anyone mislead you, because many will come in my name, claiming to be the Messiah. They will lead many astray, and wars will break out near and far. But don't panic. Yes, these things must come, but the end won't follow immediately. Nations and kingdoms will proclaim war against each other, and there will be earthquakes in many parts of the world and famines. But all this will be only the beginning of the horrors to come. But when these things begin to happen, watch out. You will be handed over to the courts and beaten in the synagogues. Brother will betray brother to death. Fathers will betray their own children. And children will rise against their parents and cause them to be killed. And everyone will hate you because of your allegiance to me. But those who endure to the end will be saved." So Jesus is making prophetic statements, but we know from the timeline that these things were already happening by the time Mark wrote his gospel. In effect, Mark is giving comfort to his audience by highlighting Jesus' belief that following him may lead to trouble for the community and for individuals. I'm not saying that Mark is putting words in Jesus' mouth. I'm saying that anything Jesus said related to persecution would be helpful to Mark's audience who were experiencing persecution. So Mark is describing things that are already happening to comfort those who are suffering. Finally, there are several types of literature uh, unique to the New Testament uh, we need to recognize. The obvious ones are gospel, uh, epistles, letters, and the history of the early church found in the Acts of the Apostles. Within the gospels, there are signs that reveal the true identity of Jesus, mostly John, uh, parables that Jesus told to reveal truth about the kingdom, Uh, miracle stories, and aphorisms, those uh, pithy statements that stick in the brain and define the wisdom of Jesus. Uh, For example, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. The, The overall point of this literary examination is that when we understand the type of writing we're reading and we understand some of the context, we can find greater meaning in the text. A good example here would be the Psalms. While we know that the wicked do not automatically suffer and the good do not always prosper, it speaks to our deepest longing for a structured universe and the reward that we deserve for trying our best. Rather than ignore the genre, we can use it to share in that expression of longing found in the text. 
people who experience suffering have found great comfort in the lament psalms, uh, including Jesus, and turn to them to meet a particular need. Every human emotion is found in Scripture, and we enter the text to experience God anew. That's all for now, so thanks again for joining me. Also, uh, don't forget to visit the website, uh, p2.ca slash podcast, to find some of the readings shared today.